0: The Wake Knot, by Robert McMinn. Chapter 37, Defeater of Knots. For the sake of all holy things, let there be no more murder here. Charlie received a glancing blow that sliced her ear. Great, she thought. Now I'll need a tetanus jab on top of everything else. The smell of her assailant was overpowering. A mixture of sour body odour, cannabis, ashtrays and dogshit breath. His eyes were wild, his face filthy, his hair, when she tore the hoodie back from his head, matted and tangled with beads of rainwater collecting on its oily surface. She stamped her right foot sideways down his shin. That had to hurt the bastard. And continued to hold on to his arm, so he couldn't swing the fucking scythe, that pretentious and out-of-place agricultural tool they'd noticed on their previous visit. She risked a look at where Chris had got to, He was heading in the wrong direction, loping weirdly, his legs at all angles, his path across the deck a kind of zigzag. He'd hit the glass door hard enough to crack the glass. She shoved her attacker back and took a swing at his balls with her foot, at the same time wrenching the side's handle from his hands. He grunted and pitched forward and she cracked him in the face with the wooden handle, only now feeling a mounting rage that this disgusting fuck could attack them. He spun around and toppled forwards, tripped, and then something broke his fall before he could hit the ground. There was a noise, like a watermelon hitting a kitchen floor, and then the rain was absolutely teeming down, a single sheet of solid water, and she couldn't see Chris, and the tramp, the beast, she thought to herself, wasn't moving. Was, in fact, staring at the ground like a dead thing. Because he was dead. She looked at where it had fallen. The tree stump. The one with the metal spike embedded in it that Chris had thought must be for sharpening things like... things like scythes. Where was Chris? She called his name but the rain was too loud on the decking. Nobody could hear anything in this. She took a breath and headed out into the monsoon, down the stone steps, hoping that Chris was waiting for her somewhere down the hill. She felt, rather than saw the surface changing under her feet. The grass turned into an instant swamp, and she couldn't see any signs of Chris. She went back up the steps to the decking to check in the direction she'd last seen him. No sign. And that dark shape must be the pool itself. She headed to the left to the fake grass in the corner, where there was a wall Chris might have climbed to get to the driveway. Called Chris's name again, held a hand over her eyes to shield them and peered into the wet whiteness. "'Chris!' The corner of her eye, tuned by millions of years of evolution to catch movement in her peripheral vision, sensed something to her left, and then she heard the slapping of water. "'Chris!' She ran back to the side of the pool and saw where the tarpaulin had detached from its moorings and the shape of a human head beneath it. "'Chris!' She tugged at the tarp, her heart pounding harder than it had during the fight. Not another one, please. She was begging the fates, whoever might be listening. But he was fine, considering the circumstances. He finally found his way from under the black tarp and stood up in the pool, water sluicing from his shoulders. Charlie sobbed with relief and reached out a hand to help him climb out. Well, I did get soaked. Your ears bleeding, he said, putting his bent glasses onto his face. Is it? I hadn't noticed, she breathed, thinking that she sounded like someone in a movie. Your face is bleeding. She reached around the back of his head and her hand came away covered in blood. We need to get you to a hospital, she said. Again? She headed back towards the house. She was thinking that the quickest way back to the car would be to go out the front gate. They'd call the police from the hospital. Chris grabbed at her arm you're not going back there. She turned. Oh, it's okay. He's dead. Impaled himself on that spike thing. Come on, let's get out of this hellhole. But the doors were locked, so she led him to the very end of the infinity pool across the fake grass and then they crossed a narrow ledge to the other side where they were able to scramble up the grass slope. She led him, as it were, up the garden path and to the bolted wooden gate, which they left open. Chris didn't turn to look back. They hurried down the road. Chris had to stop once to throw up into a drain, but soon enough they were in the hire car, its blows on full to clear the steamed-up windows and the wipers on the monsoon setting. Charlie had two skin closure strips over her ear instead of stitches, while Chris had the real thing in the back of his head. They'd both had tetanus jabs in their thighs. Chris had been issued with a hospital shower cap. His nose had stopped bleeding soon enough, but he had a concussion and was prescribed painkillers and exercise to improve the blood flow. He was no longer in such a sorry state, and his clothes were drying out, as were hers but now they were waiting around for the police to find them at the hospital. Chris was pacing, barefoot, Charlie leaning back and drinking vending machine coffee. he had tried to straighten the bent temple of his glasses so they didn't look too bad, but he still looked a little manic when he looked at her straight on. So you think it was him? he'd asked, as she was driving cautiously through the somewhat lessened downpour towards the hospital. Keep the pressure on the wound, she'd said, feeling her own blood dripping down her neck. He put the padded up cloth against the back of his head and asked the question again. His description pretty much exactly matched what you said earlier. Matted, oily, long hair, black coat. No rucksack, but that was obviously in the house. Jesus, he was fierce and huge. You had self-defence training, I assume, Chris said. Well, I did, but I don't think I used any of it back there. I was just trying to hurt him as much as possible, but it was like he couldn't feel pain, you know? like one of those people. He just kept coming. In the end, I kicked him in the bollocks just to get a breather, and the tree stump intervened. Chris had reached across and took her hand, which was resting her worst driving habit, on the gear lever. She was suddenly exhausted, but so glad he was with her. He now walked back to her and thumped down onto the seat next to her, reaching for his own coffee. So it's over. You really think it was him? It was the third time he'd asked the question, unable to process the answer because of his concussed mind. The fourth card was there, wasn't it? Justice, she shuddered. I keep thinking about Celia Patel and how she must have felt when he came up behind her. And then I keep thinking how he might have done the same to you if he'd had his garrot handy. Yes, luckily I was only scythed on the back of the head. She took his hand. I'm glad you're still here, she said. Yes, we should always remain glad that it wasn't one of us impaled on a spike. A fitting way for him to die. Some justice. You okay? Fine. Wish the gendarmes would hurry up. I dropped Sarah's name on the phone. He'll want to know. Thing is, Chris said, there was a fucking itinerant living in that house for Christ knows how long, and you have to wonder why he wasn't arrested before now. Who was to see? That village only has ghosts in it now. Barb gone, her house is empty, the fort empty too. Who even lives there? And if you were the sibling who didn't want to sell, wouldn't it suit you to let that situation continue? Later, after first an informal and then a formal interview down at the gendarmerie and an angry tirade about trespassing and threatened consequences which came to nothing, they'd been allowed to go home. At some point, They'd called Tanya and told her an edited version of what had happened, but neither of them wanted to be around the film crew. They'd returned to the hotel and each gone to their separate rooms to stand under a hot shower until the cold had left their bones. Chris had promised he'd wear the shower cap over his wound and Charlie had improvised a covering for her ear using a hair tie and a plastic bag. When she tapped on his door, he was wearing pyjamas and looking exhausted, about to take a dose of painkillers. The doctors had said it would be fine for Chris to sleep, so they went to bed. In the dark of the night, they'd both woken up in the middle of a replay of the nightmare events of the early afternoon. As they held each other in the darkness, he'd asked her to untangle the knot and lay it out for him. She gave a fair summary of how everyone had come to be in Lusignac five years before and a sceptic's view of the occult mumbo-jumbo. They posed the bodies and left cards lying around so the police would overturn their canoes in their excitement. I don't blame the gendarmes. I'd have done, did do, the same. Then someone, someone else, we still don't know who, had a go at you using a car as a weapon, which is hardly in the line of satanic ritual nor anything this homeless nutter would be doing since we think he was always on foot. But then they summoned the so-called beast again to attack you in the flat, which I think was plan A all along. They got Meg instead, and Meg got a handful of something, which was the wake-knot she was clutching when we found her. And the wake-knot was the symbol of these Satanists, which was another piece of crazy paving up the garden path. But it was also like two loops, like a rope garrotting itself, so an apt symbol. Meanwhile, the crazy old priest in the church is presumably finding all kinds of nasty presents in his church every Thursday, like carvings on his benches. And he knows it's something to do with this group of English patriots, the watchful Knot. So he had his little shrine to Mary, the undoer of knots. I suspect the local group was named by Christian, the restaurateur who came from Lincolnshire. In summation, lives were ruined, heads were wrecked, And we all went our separate ways, unsure what it was we'd been through. Only that we'd been through something. And then Tanya and Marcus come along and rake over the coals, and here we are again, and the fire is still burning. Chris kissed her. There are things we're never going to know, and I don't think I want to anymore. Barb's dead. I guess the gendarmes will deal with her son if there's any dealing to be done, and he'll get away with it or not. Or cannot. As to the car hitting me, after talking to Beck, I'm as near as can be certain it was Bill Morgan. I'm prepared to think he didn't even know it was me, just some cyclist in his way who ended up in a ditch. And they scarped quickly while the police were trying to make it all into one thing. My one regret is that we wasted five years. My other regret is that we can't tell Meg all this. Maybe we can. Maybe we should, Charlie said maybe we should just turn up at her door. Yeah, because turning up at doors unannounced has been working out so well. She had unknotted as much as she could, but it was a tangled skein, and maybe the best thing for it was to leave it be. She decided she'd inform Tanya that she was done, and wondered if Chris would too, or whether his journalistic instincts would mean he'd see the thing through to the end. Best not to think about contracts and... Legal niceties till the next day. Anyway, she reckoned all contracts are null and void when someone tries to kill you. She turned and pulled Chris to her, warm and only slightly broken, somebody to hold till morning came. Part 3 Epilogue Chapter 38 But upon thy tomb, when thy time comes, the monks of Crowland shall write. Dear Marcus, I'm sorry to have to resign my position with... Crossed out. It is with great regret that I write to resign my position with Gem TV, effective immediately, Crossed Out, following the failure of the documentary series Death in the Dordogne. While I remain proud of what we tried to do, in the execution it was flawed from the outset, and I allowed myself to become distracted at a crucial point, Crossed Out, putting the talent at risk. I'm prepared to make my resignation effective immediately, or work my notice, whichever is more convenient to you. Yours sincerely, Tanya Burgess. P.S. Marcus, what the fuck? Why don't you take my calls? P.P.S. Lots of lessons to be learned here. We should have got written assurances from the talent that they wouldn't go and start fucking investigating shit without our say-so. We were on track, had a nice story about a satanic cult with links to the Lincolnshire Fens, and a murder mystery with lots of leads but no obvious conclusion. We had a lot, and it ought to have been enough. Chief suspect was dead, so no libel issues. But then the talent, I just cannot bring myself to say their names, were going off behind my back and stealing books from people's houses and breaking and entering or whatever the fuck they thought they were doing, and leading my intern astray, getting him involved in their shit, at which point, Marcus, the bloody gendarmes stopped cooperating, and the retired investigator Serre retrospectively withdrew his permission to use his words and likeness, which left me nowhere to go. And in the end, it looks like it was some mad homeless guy who was taking all the blame for it, and everybody else has melted away. The talent bloody quit and left me with a half-baked story. I mean, I understand them not wanting to go on camera and confess to fucking pushing over someone's fucking fence and getting into a fight with a squatter. But we could have done something about finishing the story. PPPS. Look, the reason I got so distracted, bloody James had the hots for Beck, and it all went tits up. I mean, has the man literally no Gaydar at all? So unnecessary. Anyway, I was trying to pour oil on troubled waters there and settle those two down. Beck was complaining about harassment and James was sulking, which was when the other two went AWOL. First I heard about it, they had stitches in their heads, and one of them had two fucking black eyes so I suppose we wouldn't have been able to film for a couple of weeks. So it all went to shit, and I'm taking the blame, but you and I both know, Marcus, that this was not my fault. Please call me PPPPS. Marcus, the documentary is a wash, but what if I, crossed out, we, wrote a screenplay? That was the last episode of The Wake Not. Hope you enjoyed listening. I'll uh, take a a little time off now and I'll be back with a reading of my novel, The Obald, in a few months' time. In the meantime, you can find me on Mastodon at theobald at mindly.social and you can keep up with my blog, Mac Min and Cheese, robbukmin.net.